Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean and Beyond podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Well, you may have noticed that there was a podcast released twice. Let me tell you the story on that. I scheduled about three podcasts to be released consecutively week by week. And these were the interviews that I did with Jackson and Xanthi on Finding Avalon. And so I subscribed to my own podcast and I figured everything was working just fine. And and the first podcast gets released and the next week... Uh, the ne- the next podcast doesn't get released, and the following the week, the next podcast does not get released. And uh, finally, I realize that my podcasts are not getting out there and getting into the RSS feed like they're supposed to. And then I remembered reading something from iTunes about how they don't want episode numbers in the titles anymore. And I put episode titles or episode numbers in the titles because of requests from listeners like you. Apparently, they want us to put episode numbers in a different location. And when I do my ID3 tag editing, I don't have a special spot to put episode numbers. So I was still putting episodes numbers, or episode numbers into the title of the podcast. So it makes it easier for you to identify which podcast you're listening to. And then I did another release of a same podcast, the same podcast, the interview that I did with Jackson and Xanth- Xanthi. And suddenly all three of those episodes came out. So you got a duplicate of one of the podcasts. And I'll be honest with you, I have no idea what's going on. I wrote uh, Blueberry, who is the the company that, produces the PowerPress WordPress plugin, which is what I use to create the RSS feed, which feeds into the iTunes directory. And they said, there's no telling what happened. The only way I was able to get it to work on my iPhone was I had to delete or unsubscribe from my own podcast and then resubscribe. And then all the old episodes that I thought had not been released were released. So anyway, I'm not sure what to do right now. According to iTunes, they don't want me putting episode numbers in the titles. If it causes problems, I may pull them out, but I'm going to continue to try to put episode numbers in the title because people need to know that this is episode number 100. I think it's 188 today. So I've been doing these podcasts a long time. And like I say, it's the oldest continuously running sailing podcast in the iTunes directory. And and iTunes doesn't even want to be called iTunes anymore. It just wants to be called podcast, the podcast directory. So that represents a lot of hours at the microphone and the editing station. All right. So that's uh, that's the update on the podcast feeds. I've got two podcasts that I'm going to be scheduling right now, and we'll see if they work. The one I'm going to release today, which is on uh, May 20th, 2019, and then I'll release another one in about another week. But I'm going to try to get them both loaded up into uh, the website today and just schedule the release uh, the following week. I don't want to overwhelm you with material. All right, the summer sailing season. I've got my full summer sailing season scheduled and arranged, and my airplane tickets have been bought. 
and I've got uh, the first crew filled up. The second crew is open, and I sent out an invitation to everybody that's a Patreon because I want the patrons to have the first choice. And uh, <laughs> one one of my patrons wrote back and said, uh, Franz, I travel with uh, three hard cases of luggage, and I I smoke constantly, and <laughs> he was... He is a bit facetious. <laughs> he said he couldn't make it. He's been too busy doing other things. But that was the only response I got from my patrons. If you are a patron and you didn't get that email, uh, you might check. I sent it out to everybody that is a patron. So I still have an opening. Uh, and the opening is from July 25th to July 31st. It would be for a maximum of two people. And... Ideally, I, you know, I, ideally, I like a couple guys with me. Uh, I've, I've had lots of women on the boat, but they always find it a little rougher than they like because, uh, you yeah, know, we don't have a lot of privacy on the boat. At night, you pee in a bucket, and a lot of women don't like to do that. So just to make it easy on myself, I prefer two, two friends join me. And uh, so if you're interested in that slot, Again, July 25th to July 31st, you would join me in Sibidik. That means you would fly into Split, Croatia, and uh, then catch cat cab or taxi or something up to Sibidik, which is, I think, around 30 miles north of, of uh, Split. And you would be getting off the boat near Pula, at a little town called Palmer, which is about a three three-mile cab ride from Pula. We might actually get into Pula, but I kind of doubt it. We're sort of working our way up the coast. We're moving north through Croatia, and I have a full schedule and <laughs> planned ports of calls. If you're interested, you make sure you write me, franz1 at medsailor.com. It's sort of going to be first come, first serve. And if I don't find anybody, I'll sail it by myself. I'm actually debating on even asking anybody because I, I haven't got any solo sailing time planned out for this summer right now. And if nobody takes me up on this offer, I'll be looking forward to doing some solo sailing. But if it's something you're interested in, write me a note. Tell me about yourself and tell me why you want to join me. All right. I think this is, like I said, this is episode number 188, I think. Let me go look. Yeah, no, this is episode number 187, and you may notice now, if you've gone to the website, you can go back and download the previous 20 episodes of the podcast. And in fact, in the iTunes directory or in your podcast directory, you can go back and and download the previous 20 episodes. I used to let you download all the episodes back into the very beginning, but I've made those all those posts private last week. And if you are interested in the back catalog, there's two ways to get it. You can go into the website, medsailor.com. And on the left-hand side, in the upper left-hand corner, you will see past podcasts. You can click on that and you can buy bundles of 20 podcasts for $10 each going all the way back to the beginning. Or... You can become a patron at the $25 level, and that will give you access to all of the old episodes. And then also you can buy the full bundle of episodes, I think, for $100, $99.99. So 
So if you want to listen to past podcasts, again, you can download the last 20 through iTunes or you, through your podcast directory. And the previous ones, prior to 20 episodes, you're going to need to go and buy those if you want them. The next thing I want to talk about is a review that I got in iTunes. <laughs> this came out on April 30th. And this was from Alma Silvana. He wrote, or she wrote, If you can overlook the author's rants against the EU, this is a great resource for sailing aficionados of any levels, especially if you are centered in the Mediterranean, like I am. I just started sailing classes in view of getting my ASA certification, and this podcast has been very helpful. Alma Silvana, why don't you buy some of my ASA audio courses? I would appreciate that. There's two ways you can support this podcast. The number one method is to become a Patreon and support the podcast on an ongoing basis. And the second way is to buy my audio products. And I have audio lessons for the written portion of the ASA 101, the 103, and the 104 available at the website. And you can also get those in uh, Amazon and iTunes, I think, as well. And now you can also buy my past podcast episodes if you're interested in those. So those are the two ways you can support me. But Alma, I appreciate you writing the review. I really do. You're probably never going to get me to quit ranting against the EU. And it's not against the EU in general. It's against the EU VAT, which affects foreign boats. If you're in Europe... You're going to have to deal with this VAT issue yourself and pay an additional 20 to 25% of the cost of your boat and then just ask yourself, what are you getting for that money? What does government really give you? I'm a libertarian. I don't like big government. The smaller the government, in my opinion, is the better government. The EU is a mega government, just like the U.S. federal government is a mega government. And I would rant against the United States government as well. So I'm not a big fan of any big government. So I appreciate the review, though. All right. Let's get on to my interview today. All right. Before we get on to the interview I have today with Jeff Whitmer, let me thank my sponsor, Sailrite. Since 1969, Sailrite has been equipping you with everything you need to sew for your boat, from bimini's and boat covers to upholstery work and even sewing your own sails. Sailrite is your one-stop shop for fabric, sail and canvas kits, tools, hardware and sewing supplies. Sailrite is also the maker of the patented Ultrafeed sewing machine, a portable heavy-duty machine that can handle all the sewing jobs for your boat and more. A passionate crew of DIYers, Sailrite produces high-quality, free how-to videos to empower their customers to turn their sewing dreams into a reality. All right, let's get on to the interview I have today with Jeff Whitmer. Actually, in my office, I have Jeff Whitmer, who's a resident of Utah, who's going to take off and go sailing, and we're here to learn about his story. Jeff, tell us about where you got your background in sailing. So my background in sailing, I did not grow up sailing, um, but went to a college. It was actually a, uh, a military school, and during boot camp, getting all yelled at and everything, they had one little exercise where they put us out on lasers in the Severn River, and it was the first alone time I had to myself in four weeks, and I had no idea what I was doing. But uh, 
at one point in about the one hour that we had to sail, I was able to pull on the main sheet right and hold the rudder correct and feel the boat lunge forward. And it was the moment that I really fell in love with sailing. And then after boot camp, we used to have to march parades every once in a while. And marching out in a parade, I noticed that uh, the big 44-foot sailboats that the school had uh, was full of guys my age wearing khakis and polo shirts instead of the uncomfortable uh, marching uniforms. And I said, I want to get out of marching and be on them. So I joined the offshore sailing team. And uh, then we got to sail, sail J-24s and Navy 44s. Um, and I uh, was able to sail to Bermuda and back and up and down the East Coast in summers and kind of fell in love with sailing. So the military academy, which one? Naval Academy. Oh, the U- in Annapolis then. Yeah, yeah. And the kicker is, is I only went for two years. I had two brothers that uh, graduated two years ahead of me, and uh, with a little bit of their encouragement and a little bit of my I was seven or nineteen at the time. Seventeen when I started, I wound up leaving, so I didn't finish the Naval Academy, and I moved out here to Utah and met my beautiful wife and concentrated on big mountains for a while. Well, that's that's big to give up the military academy. That's that's pretty prestigious. I mean, Annapolis is a pretty prestigious university. What was the motivation for leaving? You know, I really love the Naval Academy. I love being on the sailing team, even to the point where um, I just went back for all of my buddies' 15-year reunion because they're all still in the Navy flying, and it's the only time they all get back together. So I really love the Naval Academy, but I saw enough of the real Navy, and like I said, in my little 19-year-old brain at the time, realized that the Navy wasn't what I was looking for, the Navy lifestyle. A ton of respect for military people. I have a lot of veterans in my family. I actually volunteer at a wounded warrior camp uh, with a lot of my time right now. I worked for the Air Force as a civilian for nine years, but um, being in the Navy was not something that I saw in my future when I was going there. And so I wound up leaving. And it was hard um, because then I moved out to Utah, and all of a sudden I had to pay for rent and my own food and clothes and everything else. And uh and it was uh, it was more work coming out here, but it's sure I'm sure that life would have been great either way. But life's been really good this way too. So, are you from Utah? No, I grew up in Vermont. Vermont. Well, all right. So that's when you first started sailing. But how did you continue on sailing once you got to Utah? Yeah. So you know as well as anybody, it's hard to uh, sail in Utah, right? And the bottom line is, uh, being a poor college kid, there wasn't any sailing for the first uh, maybe five years after I moved out here. And I had an uncle who, uh, he's an ophthalmologist, and before he did his residency, he took off for three months and sailed with his cousin. And then uh, he got stuck in med school and started a practice and never got to sail again. And he had heard that the bareboat companies would charter to somebody with my experience. I didn't even know that bareboat charter companies existed and certainly could not afford them. So my uncle on the first trip paid to charter a boat down in the Caribbean. And uh, I went down and they were silly enough to let me charter a boat. Because the irony is when uh, when you're racing sailboats offshore, you pull out of the dock once and you go race for a long time in the middle of the ocean. And then you pull back into the dock at the end of the trip. And the important things when you're bareboating are anchoring, docking, 
not clogging the toilets, uh, keeping systems running, and have very little to do with if you sail poorly, you just go slow, right? So we uh, we sucked ropes into props. We may have bumped the ground once. We made plenty of mistakes on that first week-long trip, but it was a lot of fun. We fell in love. Where did you go again? British Virgin Islands. PVIs, okay. Yeah. So was that the only time you chartered a boat? No. So after that trip, we found that, hey, if you split a boat four ways or with however many cabins, it's actually a pretty affordable vacation. So I think last check, we've chartered 18 times for various amounts of time. British Virgin Islands, Spanish Virgin Islands. We've gone up to Anacortes, Washington. Uh, Channel Islands off California. Our new favorite place is La Paz, Sea of Cortez in Mexico. is just gorgeous and a little bit more remote. We like the more remote places. And so I think all told we've got over six months on boats in little 10-day to three-week chunks on bare boats. All right. So now what's the big plans? So the big plans are we have... I, I should say we're still in the per- process of purchasing a catamaran in Greece. I've paid for it. I have a bill of sale. It's not deflagged. There's all kinds of logistics we might talk about more later. We're buying a catamaran in Greece, taking 12 months off to go and sail. And, uh, and we hope to cross the Atlantic and wind up, see where the wind takes us from the Caribbean when we have to kind of close up shop after the 12 months and get back to real life again. So you're going to go over in an, an, in the next month or so? Yep. So plane tickets leave May 12th, so we're about three weeks away. All right. So I've I'm, I'm got Google Earth open here, and I'm going to zoom in on where you're at. What island? Are, or Are you in Athens, or where did you I'm in Lefkada. So we're actually starting on the Lefkata's. west coast of okay. Greece, just south of Albania. Yeah. Lefkada's? Right in Lefkada's? Yes. Okay, right south. Okay, you're right south of Albania's. Is Corfu, so that's a little farther south. Okay, yeah, that's correct. So in the big marina there, have you been over to even check out the boat? Oh yeah, okay. Yeah, no, we spent. I paid a surveyor. We spent three days going through every nook and cranny and uh, everything else. We started our first boat shopping trip was in Croatia in November, and uh, we wound up putting an offer on this boat in Greece after seeing all the boats in Croatia and, and seeing this one sight unseen. But then we, uh, I went out for a survey in January. And went through everything. Uh, we're buying the boat through Sunsail or the Moorings, which is, you know, one of the biggest charter companies, if not the biggest charter company around. It's the same now. You know that. Yeah. They're owned by the same company. Yeah. They have all kinds of subsidiaries, one of which I sent a big check to. <laughs> you know, they, uh, yeah, they're a big operation. There's pluses and minuses, but overall, it's been a really good experience working through with them. But I sure am glad we started in November. Because here we are, May, and, and the boat's not quite deflagged. We had some paperwork issues. They just asked for more stuff yesterday, and we're still uh, working through some of the repair things that we found in the survey. So it's been a it's been a big, long process, and uh, I thought we were being real proactive starting early, but I think we started at just the right time. So when did you actually purchase the boat then? So we went under contract on the boat in November. Um, it was mid-November, but... Um, the winter is their very slow season. They shut down their entire base for the month of December, pretty much. And so um, I actually did not wind up. So we went under contract, did the survey in January, and I paid for the boat end of January. 
Um, and then once you pay for the boat, you have to start the deflag process. They start working on things, all of that. It's, uh, it surprised me how it's not as defined when you buy a house. There's title agencies and there's very, a very uh, structured process to follow with ownership and things. This is much more – my bank called me twice to make sure that I wanted to wire that much money to this company uh, like, hey, are you serious? Like, this is international? You know, it, it wasn't even international, actually, because we sent it. One of the nice things about dealing with the moorings in Europe is our contract was in U.S. dollars, and we were able to work with the U.S. arm of their company, um, which is really nice. But, yeah, learned all kinds of stuff and pretty good at dealing with bureaucracy after working for the federal government for nine years, but definitely using those skills. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, banks are always concerned. I, I wired, I think it was around $1,500 over to Turkey a couple of years ago, and my bank made me jump through hoops to do that. So anytime you're wiring funds overseas, it seems like our our banks really don't want to let that money go very much. Yeah, they either don't want to let it go or they're looking out for us. I appreciated it. I actually wound up trying to call and do some three-way verification to just make sure I wasn't getting taken and everything was on the up and up and, and very good, but... Uh, yeah, it's just it's an interesting process for sure. There's lots of leaps of faith, and I'm sure that I'll do it much better my second time around. But the first time, <laughs> all right. <laughs> so, t- through. so is it a catamaran you bought? Yes. So like the boat you chartered? Because I checked out your YouTube video and mm-hmm. watched that. So you l- wanted to go with a catamaran. How many kids do you have? How big is the family? So there's we're a family of five. We've got me and my wife, and then when we leave, roughly we'll be 12, 11, and 4. And so we've got a pretty awesome crew, three boys, and uh, they've grown up. I've got pictures of all of them six months and on on little charter sailboats or whatever. They, uh, they really love it. They've been really, really excited. They're excited to get on the boat. They love fishing. They love, uh, you know, for us the boat has always been kind of a place where we really have more focused family time when we go on those vacations. I'll be interested to see how it works when the boat is just normal life for a year and how that changes. But it's been, uh, everybody's very excited to get out and do this. We've been talking about it so long that making the dream come true is, uh, it feels really, really good. It'll be interesting to see if the reality matches the expectation or how different those two are. Right. All right, well, let's talk about how you set yourself up to be able to do this because a lot of people can't imagine taking off a year and going sailing. So tell us how you planned for it, how you saved for it. What was the process? So the first thing started, and it it probably was not with the goal of going on a sailboat trip at first, but when my wife and I first got married in 2003, we had maybe been married six months when we bought our first fixer-upper house just down the road here. It was $103,000. It was on the west side of Liberty Park, kind of a, a little bit rougher neighborhood than it is now, I think. And, uh, and we bought that house and fixed it up and flipped it in like six months and moved into our next house. And so fast forward, we had been married roughly – It was nine years when we moved into our sixth house, just always keeping the equity in and improving, doing a lot of work. The first three were remodels. The last three were builds where we did a lot of the work while we were building, while working full-time. I'm a mechanical engineer, and 
by my standards and what I'm used to, I make a very good living, but um, it wouldn't be enough to be able to afford to take the year off and buy the boat. And so the house stuff and, uh, and keeping all that money in is really the vehicle and then the savings. So we've been saving for 15 years and um, with what everything will cost, um, yeah, we'll be able to do it. But there's a reason why we've limited ourselves to 12 months <laughs> and that's that it's comfortable being an engineer, you know, of course, I've got a spreadsheet. I've got everything figured out. It's all very conservative. Um, always been very financially conservative. I drive a $2,500 car. I, you know, just ordered lunch off the dollar menu. Pretty frugal people. And so we're kind of out of, at least I'm kind of out of my element with this spending a bunch of money on a boat, flying out to Europe to go get it. So it's a little uh, bit of a new experience there kind of opening up the floodgates and so that's taking a little bit of getting used to so what did the boat cost you so um all in with everything that we're doing to it it's right around three hundred thousand dollars okay now did you negotiate with Sunsail that they have to keep it in their marina or use are you paying marina fees right now? No, that's uh, that's one of the really nice things about dealing with Sunsail. You know, I mean, hey, it's a charter boat. You got to know what you're getting into. And because we've always been on a budget, hey, we've gone on, on a lot of charter trips. We've always rented from like the third tier charter operations. We've actually never been able to. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say we've never been able to afford chartering from the moorings. We've never chosen to charter from them because you pay a premium, right? So we're used to pretty ratty, used-up charter boats. A lot of people are surprised when they go and look at the condition of a charter boat because it's not – doesn't look like a boat that uh, has been used privately. just sees a lot more traffic and a lot more maybe uh, people that don't have ownership in the boat. But working with the moorings, they are set up there with crews of people to work on the boats. They're set up there with the slips already taken care of. And as far as my experience has gone, so they're willing to, they just volunteered to pay to keep the boat until everything that we found in the discrepancy list is solved, right, and fixed. And so that, one, gives them an incentive to get it done, but two, keeps me from paying for a boat that I can't take off the dock that's not ready to go or anything else. And it turns out just with the way that the timing has come um, and... Well, the way that the timing has gone, we pretty much won't pay any docking until we show up, which is really, really nice. When we first went to Croatia, we were looking at purchasing a boat in December and having to store it for six months to figure out a place to keep it. And that's a big cost. The insurance, um, the things that go wrong with the boat when it's just sitting, there's a lot of disadvantages. And so I feel like this has been a relatively easy, cheap buying process compared to what it could be. So how many boats did you look at, and what was your search like? Tell us about the, the searching process. Yeah, the searching process was really interesting. So as I mentioned, my wife and I, uh, we went to Croatia, and brokers work a little bit different in Croatia. I wanted to find, you know, buying and selling homes, I never wanted an agent to represent me. I wanted to save the 3%, you know. Buying a boat, knowing that I needed help, I wanted to find an agent who was going to take me around and show me different boats. In Europe, what I found is most of the agents are listing agents or they don't sign exclusive contracts to represent a boat. So everything's a lot more fluid and it's harder to get people to just spend a day with you and show boats. So it was a lot of logistics of setting up appointments and really just looking at Yacht World, talking to people on the phone, word of mouth, letting people know what we're looking for. 
And uh, we went a little late. So like I said, maybe it was actually early December, like December 7th when we went out. And a lot of the boats had already sold because they're so seasonal that um, the boats that don't sell by about November, they start booking charters for the year. So we had a fantastic time in Croatia. In the end, I think we maybe saw eight catamarans, two of which were really interesting, which we probably would have made offers on. Um, but a broker from the moorings had called me back on a boat that I had asked about. And he said, well, hey, look, we have this one. And I think there was flexibility because it wound up being a lot less than the asking price and uh, coming into our budget. And we weren't in love enough with any of the things that we saw in person to not take a chance on this one for how good of a boat it was in the model. And we went to the moorings base that was in Croatia and looked at the same model. Which boat. one? Which mooring base? Um, Dubrovnik, Split? No, north, just just Pula. north of, of Split. It's kind of in, it's off by itself. Oh, okay, all right. It's, uh, I've forgotten the name, but you know what? Everybody there was just super helpful, really nice. We went back twice. We thought about making the drive all the way down to Greece to look at this boat in particular, but it involved about a 19-hour drive and going through Kosovo. Troger? Yes, Troger. Troger. Okay. Yeah. And... Um, yeah, so we were able to see this model of boat and took a chance on it. And that was a little nerve-wracking, going to Croatia, deciding not to buy a boat, feeling like all the boats are either selling or booking, and uh, and kind of committing to this Leopard 44 that we had never seen before in Greece. And then, uh, but once we got out there and I got there by survey, we were actually pleasantly surprised by the condition that it was in. Um, like I say, I wasn't looking for a new boat, and it's definitely a used charter boat, but compared to the charter boats that we've been exposed to in the Caribbean, they'd have twice as many hours and twice as much wear, and this boat uh, felt like it was in very good shape. Okay. So who was your surveyor, and what did you have to have done? So my surveyor's name is a guy uh, named Kev Whittle. He's actually a Brit, and uh, there was a lot of Brits in Lefkis. Um, which was helpful with language barriers and everything. He's a resident in the marina. He lives on his 40-foot monohull there and does a lot of surveys. And so, you know, everybody always talks about trying to get a unbiased surveyor from outside. We may have broken that rule, but it sure was nice because Kev had relationships with all the guys doing the haul out, with the guys doing everything. So you can worry about him maybe not representing you as well, or that can be an advantage where he was able to help us do a very good survey. And I think he was able to help me get a lot of things fixed, which wouldn't have normally been fixed. So like I say, the boat was actually in very good shape mechanically and overall, like uh, sails, rigging, the hull, uh, the engines, um, all of that. There were no major issues there. The two biggest things that we found First, the house batteries, while functional, and would hold the charge. So we checked them and checked them overnight, um, and and they were old and they were original. And the boats of 2011, mm. and uh, and so while they were functioning and working, we mentioned it, and uh, Sunsail was willing to buy. They bought three new 225 amp hour gel batteries for the boat to replace them, which is really nice. That's a pretty big chunk of money. And the other thing that this particular model of boat has. Doing a little bit of research online, it's a common issue. And walking down the dock, um, one of the plexiglass windows, the plexiglass windows that face the sun, all the boats 
face the same direction they get on, cracked, on the sun. They? Yeah, they, they, they crack. They little hairline cracks all through them, right? These weren't even hairline cracks. So I took a picture of you. I could slip a piece of paper between them. It was about a three-inch long crack. And, uh, and it's a problem online, and my engineering brain has a very good explanation that we probably don't need to get into here. But with the heating and cooling and with half of it being shaded, I think um, it's a hot and cold thing because there were three other boats of the same model with the same window cracked in the same place. And uh, so he had them replace that too, and they ordered a factory window from Robertson and Kane, who's down in South America. And then um, the next biggest problem was – Threads were leaking on the boat has two water heaters and on each water heater threads were leaking in there. Um, had them fix that, but I have a list of I think it's twenty eight things down to like smaller cosmetic things that they were willing to fix and um, no price negotiation or anything else. It was just we'll fix that and have it be right. Nice thing about having Kev the surveyor down there locally too is I'm able to just ask him to go check up on it. And so he's been watching, making sure the work's getting done while I've been gone. How did you find the surveyor? You know, Google, internet search, and uh, and you just left Cotta's a small enough place, and there was there were enough positive reviews, and then I called Kev and talked to him over the phone. And um, he did really, really good, and he was also very nice because I, uh, I treated those three days like a job, and uh, I was 14 hours in the boat every day looking through things, you know, measuring, taking pictures, and uh, he was very appreciative of me being there and he I wasn't getting in the way he liked the company and the help and I was able to find things that he probably wouldn't have found he certainly found a lot of things that I wouldn't have found but uh I felt very good about the boat after those three days which felt really nice because hey man we're going to be crossing the Atlantic with my family on this thing and you want to make sure that uh you're doing everything you can to make sure it's safe so did he climb the rigging and inspect it from top down then you know what he's not a rigging inspector and that was one of the things that if i could do differently i had assumed that was going to happen and it and it didn't i even brought my climbing gear to do that myself then the base is like hey liability wise you probably can't be climbing this mass and i couldn't get a rigger there the boat's of 2011 and so the rigging's seven years old um and so a lot of time with binoculars and that's that's maybe the one hole. All the rigging at base level is in very good shape that you can see. But as far as going up high, looking at sheaves, looking at stuff like that, um, yeah, that's something that I'll, I need to arrange to have done um, once we get out there. So you, you initially flew over to Split yep. and worked up and down the Croatian coast a while. And then what did you just fly down to Greece from Split and check it out from there? No. So we only had a week. Like the kids were at home. And uh, so that Croatian boat trip was very much just a, hey, let's go look. Croatia had the highest concentration of boats that we were interested in in our price range, huge charter bases there and Mm -hmm. everything. And like I say, I had some really promising boats there. Um, but we had to get home, and uh, at least the way that the moorings works is you can pretty much no risk put down an offer with a small deposit on a boat, and it holds it there. And so we did that, and I wasn't able to get out for a survey until the beginning of January um, to get out and look at it, but that was a separate trip. And so my poor wife, she's dying. That was half of what I was doing for those three days is just taking pictures of every nook and cranny because she's never seen the actual boat yet. (laughs) (laughs) And they were all waiting for my Google photos to upload and everything while they were seeing it while I was gone because, uh, it's a really exciting thing. And, uh, yeah, but all in all, 
we learned a lot in Croatia. We learned a lot about what we wanted, what we didn't want, learned what was important, a little bit more about how the brokers worked, uh, and also learned a lot of advantages to like our deal as far as paying for boat storage, as far as having a contract in U.S. dollars with a U.S. company. There have been a lot of things that we stumbled on uh, that have made this much easier than what it could be. And it's already been a lot of work just to get the boat purchase done. But uh, it, it could have been much more difficult. I actually have been catching up on your podcast, and I just listened to the story of um, their Instagram, Seven on the Seas. It's uh, your buddy did the interview, remote interview, when they were in South Italy a while ago. Uh, which one's that one? Oh, is that Jack Andrews? It's not. Yeah, it, it was whoever. He did a remote podcast for you, and you pretty oh, much just patched I it just, through. Yeah. Right? And so yeah. and so his story was they just kind of made an offer on a boat and showed up with their five kids and the luggage. Well, this is the one in Turkey, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. right, and stuff. And, uh, and I feel not that there was anything wrong with that. It's worked out great for them. I actually – instant messaged him about uh, Shenzhen rules and things like that. But that sounded really hard and not <laughs> and not where we wanted to be. And so I'm glad we started in November. I feel fortunate that we ended up with the boat we got because the bottom line is, with the exception of one, our D flag should have come through yesterday, and that's the final step. Um, and they requested more paperwork yes, yesterday, and it's usually a three-week process. So, so, so who's handling the bureaucracy for Is it Sunsail that's taking care of all this? They're handling it on their end with the because the D flag is their responsibility. I have a lot of bureaucracy on my end. It's a combination of me and an agent, and I actually wound up um, so getting your boat U.S. Coast Guard registered or documented. Excuse me, it's probably something you've mm-hmm. done with your boat, right? Right now, with the government shutdown. Having been just recently and everything, they're about a three- or four-month wait for Coast Guard documentation, Mm. which is problematic because you can't go anywhere without your boat being documented. And supposedly there's an exception for boats that are international, that they'll do that quicker. Okay, But – and this is something that – I hope we don't have to use, but just to head off, I actually created a Delaware LLC – and registered the boat to that LLC. And it's not that the boat's a business or anything else, but one, I like the limited liability of the LLC, but two, it allows me to register the boat in Delaware, which is an internationally recognized because so many boats are registered in Delaware. The Turks have discovered that. Yeah, exactly. And so while officially foreign countries do not have to accept a Delaware registration like they they do do a U.S. Coast Guard they do. Yeah. And so I, I already have a Delaware registration right now okay. in the mail for the boat. And so worst case scenario is if we get bit by the D-flag U.S. Coast Guard documentation, we'll travel on that Delaware registration until I can get it documented with the Coast Guard. Okay. All right. So I'm looking at a uh, floor plan of the uh, of the boat, and it looks like you've got room for 10 and you're only five, so you're going to have lots of friends coming over and joining you? Yeah, you better believe it. My uh, my, my uncle, who was the ophthalmologist who never got to go sail before, uh, he's now retired, and he's already signed up for the Atlantic Crossing. I have another buddy signed up for that. And, uh, yeah, it's an interesting thing. I tell people, I think I got this advice from somebody on your podcast. Um, you can tell people 
or people can choose when they want to come or where they want to come, but not both. <laughs> and uh, because the boat moves so slow and we are a family, we don't, we don't, I'm not going to stick to a strict itinerary. We are very much, so we've got the itinerary of we don't want to be in the Mediterranean in the winter and I don't want to be in the Caribbean during hurricane season. And outside of that, you know, and I want to do the Atlantic crossing beginning of December for the weather window, right? Outside of that, we don't know exactly where or what we're going to do. And uh, and so the people that are most flexible and either have a lot of airline miles or a lot of money to buy plane tickets will be the ones that probably make it out the most. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's talk about your planned itinerary. So the planned itinerary is driven by Shenzhen visa requirements, which – well, you're not going to be subject to that for 18 months. Well, so that's for VAT on boats. This right. is and, – and I – so the, the boat is in. okay. This is the – as a U.S. citizen, you're entitled to a 90 days out of the previous 100 days for a Shenzhen visa. And, and what Shenzhen is, everybody thinks of the city in China where a lot of stuff is made. It's not. There's a small – city in Europe where this agreement between all of the countries was formed. So, you know, like when you travel from France to Germany, there's no border checkpoints, there's no passport or anything else. It's because those countries have signed on to this Shenzhen agreement. Okay. And so that is pretty much every country that borders the Med, except for countries in Africa and Croatia, Montenegro and Albania. Okay. And, and Turkey. And so I need to spend enough time outside of Shenzhen countries to not overstay my 90 days visa, which with passages and everything else means and with our timing, I need to spend at least like a month and a half outside. And, and our plan is to go to Albania and Croatia and Montenegro and spending a month and a half there. One thing we recognize being on a one-year schedule, we're going to be skipping so much. You know, yeah. we're going to be missing. We're not going to see everything. And we're not going to go at a frantic pace to try to see everything. But, um, yeah, so the planned itinerary is starting just below Albania is just start working up the Aegean. I'm still getting the Ionian Aegean. It's the Aegean. Um, the Adriatic. Adriatic. Yeah, right. sorry. Told you. Working our way up the Adriatic and spending time between Albania, Montenegro, and Croatia. And I'd be curious to get your thoughts so now, on all those so, places. So, you're going to do that immediately, or are you going to use up 90 days and then do that? No, because it's 90 days out of the previous 180 or six months, so the clock's ticking when we get there, okay. right? And so um, we we don't want to just hop on the boat and move out immediately. We'll, we'll spend a couple of weeks in Greece. It's a beautiful place, right? And there are things to see and do there. We'll be managing it. And there's also... And I'd be curious if your listeners or anybody else have any comments. The people that I've talked to say, yes, Shenzhen's a big deal. But I've talked to at least four people who have just disregarded it, and it's been a non-issue. But I don't generally don't feel comfortable doing that, <laughs> you know, unless it's a really – unless it's like the Delaware registration thing, you know. And so I don't know exactly how that works, but our current plan is to um, sail up in Albania – have you spent any time in Albania? I did. Yeah. yeah? Tell me about it. Well, there's really only three ports that you can really visit. There's, um, and let me pull up Google Earth because it'll, it'll, uh, it'll come to me as I look at it. There's the northern port, 
There's there's a southern port, which is Sarande. Uh and so that's just a hop over from from Corfu. So that's one that you'll go through every time you go in and out of an Albanian port. You have to use an agent to check you in and check you out. I've I've read that. Yeah, and so yeah, I mean I don't know that you could really spend much time in Albania. I mean you're going to be hopping from Sarandi. Next port you're going to go to is Vlor, and in Vlor there's actually a marina that'll check check you in in Oricum. Uh, I never got actually up to the city of Lore. We just sort of hopped down the coast fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. And then the other city you'll visit is up farther north, Dures, D-U-R-R-E-S. So those would be the three stops. Now, you can spend more time than I did, but I was actually running way behind on my time schedule because that year I was sailing from um, northern Croatia all the way down to... Actually, no, it wasn't northern Croatia. It was, it was Dubrovnik, and I was going to sail to Turkey that year. So I had a lot of time to go, a lot of miles to go, and a specific amount of time. And my schedule got thrown off because I, I uh, burned up a couple of water pumps. It took me a long time to get fixed. So we just sort of boogied through Albania fairly quickly and then cleared back into Greece. Now, the advantage of Albania is it's not in the EU still. Yeah. We hope it doesn't join the EU, and same with Montenegro. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to worry about your 18 months, but you're not going to be worrying about it anyway. But those are the three. Now, once you get to uh, Montenegro, you'll probably clear in at Herzegnovi. I'm not sure if that's a clear import or not. Uh, but you may have to go to Bar to clear in, yep. and then work your way down or up from there. Albania is not ready for prime time tourism yet. I mean, it's yeah. really, it's really they they don't they don't have any sort of a yachting culture there at all. Yeah, that's what we've heard. Which we don't mind. Um, we like the off the beaten path stuff uh, as long as there's interesting things to see and do, and there's a couple grocery stores. But we're just sort of game for anything. And like I said, so if we stop and uh, and there's not a lot to see, we'll probably just move on our merry way because we hear great things about Montenegro and Croatia, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll say, say this, that uh, in Sarandi, it's the only time I've seen a, a bear on a leash on a, on a walkway. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so, so you're going to be heading north then fairly quickly. Are you going to head over to Italy and then work your way up? Or are you just going to go straight over... Straight up, getting starting your time clock over. So I think heading straight up is the initial plan, but we're because we're just kind of following the wind and have a general um, idea of where we want to go. If it makes sense to go over to Italy, we will. I had had anticipated going through Italy on our way back down mm-hmm. because we'll be going around the boot anyways. We'll be able to check in and just kind of uh, – you know, have our big dose of Italy. I think we'll wind up spending a lot of time in Italy. We really like, I've never been in Southern Italy, but uh, my wife and I for our 15th anniversary went to Northern Italy and just absolutely loved it on land. And so I anticipate it'll be a place we really enjoy. Yeah, I, I really enjoy Southern Italy. It's really off the tourist path. I mean, there's not very many people that travel down there, but I found Brindisi really interesting as as uh, same with Lecce, and there's a lot of neat places, or Tonto, uh, nice places in Italy, southern Italy. So, yeah, you'll have a good time down there. That's good. What's your advice for 
bringing a sailboat to any of those countries as far as logistics or agents well, or taxes? Well, I mean, the Italians or? are wonderful. They have a disdain for bureaucracy as a general rule. Uh, I I know when I cleared into Brindisi, I'd sailed up from Greece, and I cleared into Brindisi, and it was like pulling teeth to get them to clear me in. <laughs> they just don't want to bother with it. Yeah. And I like their disdain for bureaucracy. But you probably want to clear in, and Brindisi would be where you'd want to clear in. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've got a port office there. Uh, and it's actually a, a much nicer city than I expected it to be. I actually quite like Brindisi. Um now that's I've I've really only worked my on that on that coast. I've only really worked myself up from Ortonto up to Brindisi. I've taken a ferry over to Bari and done some inland travel from Bari. But uh, I don't have much other experience here. Now Andrew Vick, who's done some podcasts with me, talks a lot about Italy in some of his podcasts. So And I was interested about that coast on Italy because you don't I don't know. I haven't heard a lot about it you're, as you're far as behind the ankle and the calf. You're you're hopping from marina to marina as a general rule. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's your plan: working your way up, spending about three months in in Croatia, and I think maybe two months because we need to start working our way out to comfortably be leaving Gibraltar for when it starts to get cold. Right. So, so if you head over in May. Mm-hmm. May, June, July, August, September, October, November. So you've got basically seven months that you can spend. Well, you're, come October, you're not. You're going to want to be holed up somewhere because yep. it starts deteriorating pretty fast. No, that that's exactly it. Come, come then. I expect to be headed to the Canaries. Really? Okay. Yeah. So, and if you need to, if you uh, Actually, I don't think that podcast's been released yet. But if you need to have rigging done, Almiramar, Spain, I get good reviews from. There's a couple riggers in Almiramar. You may want to have it inspected. There. I definitely do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and having a good recommendation on a shop would definitely help because before we cross, we want somebody. I'll be up there poking around, but I uh, I know how to inspect pipes and pressure vessels from work, but not necessarily rigging. All right. So how are the how are you going to educate the kids for the year? So we're going to homeschool. I'm excited. Um, I'm really, really fortunate to have really good kids. And they're, (laughs) I don't know exactly how that happened, but they're uh, they're nice and they're willing to work hard when they need to. We have plenty of fun, but uh, but they do they do well in school and they and they care about school right now. Right now they're public schooled, and uh, so we will homeschool them and. The intent isn't necessarily for this to be a year where they get ahead on schoolwork. It's to have a great life experience and stay on grade, right? And so uh, so I'll be doing the math and science part, and my wife, she's an English major. Uh, she'll be doing the history and writing part, but the writing will be mostly in their journals and assignments for there, right? The history will be, we'll be learning about all the places that we're going. There's some pretty fantastic history in the places that we're going, right? Science class might be dissecting a fish that we caught, and math will just be... Uh, doing math work, you know, set, yeah. set aside time, learning how, stay on, stay on grade with math and, uh, and try to make it fun. But maybe I'm being naive cause I haven't homeschooled before, but, uh, the people that we talk to say that, Hey, you can get the academic part of a school day done in a couple hours. And then there's the whole social, you know, interaction part in school. That's also important that will work to get our kids, but I think they'll get that with just where we are. But, uh, I look forward to 
having the time to sit down and homeschool my kids because I enjoy helping them with their homework, you know, and all that. But right now it's generally a half an hour an evening instead of a couple hours a day. Yeah. Now, have you signed up to No Foreign Lands yet? No. What's that? Okay, that's a website. It was put together by Steve Neal when he was wintering in Sicily one year. And I have an interview out that Jack did with him, Jack Andrews did, while he was at Marina Ragusa in, in, uh, in Sicily. But he put together a uh, website for cruising sailors to be able to track uh, other sailors. And this is particularly good with uh, families on boats, kids yeah, on absolutely. boats. So uh, I'll be interviewing him hopefully later today for the second interview with him on the, on the podcast. But uh, that w- that's a resource you should definitely take advantage of. I think it's noforeignlands.com. Yeah, and I wonder, because it sounds familiar enough where maybe I have read that before. We, uh, I'm on the Kids for Sale Facebook group where everybody does like a monthly check-in with where they are with their kids, and that seems promising. And, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that works out. But we'll definitely be looking to do uh, – you know, get our kids around other kids, and that'll make it fun. But we're also pretty good about uh, hanging out, as we call ourselves, Team Whitmer, and just hanging out and being okay too. So we'll see what happens. So you're, you're did you take a leave of absence from your job then? Yeah, I'm extremely fortunate to have uh, a pretty great employer, and I think also just in this day and age. Um, where the younger people that are coming in and working are looking for more flexibility and looking for a little bit more work-life balance helped me in my request for a leave of absence. And so the way that a leave of absence works, where I work is they keep you on the books, but they need to get on with their life. They can't hold my position, right? So I give up my position. I've already trained my replacement at work right now. Um, and so I will leave, but hopefully my credit's good enough to where they'll find a spot for me when I come back. And unless the market tanks or business conditions change, there's enough turnover where I think I think there's about a 90% chance that that will work out, uh, which is great. And if it doesn't, um, you know, to do something like this, you just kind of have to make it a, enough of a priority. There would be a million excuses to not go there's and always not, a reason not do it. To, that's right. And, uh, and I, I actually – there was a work-related reason that uh, – because initially we were thinking about starting in the Caribbean – and then doing the South Pacific, which uh, for a lot of reasons I'm glad I'm glad to be starting in the med to start out a little bit slower. But it was a work reason that really said, hey, should we push this six months? And uh, and we did that once. And then there was another six-month you know, request. And finally it was just had to draw a hard line and say, no, I'm sorry. We're going to do this. Uh, but I, I gave my job three years' notice. So before I took moving within the – company but took my next promotion i said hey listen i'd like to take this job but you should know this and so just being really open and honest with them uh and they were receptive and uh i would say even supportive you know what everybody's been really great which is fantastic so what about your wife does she work yeah my wife does interior design for herself and this is not easy for her either because of the way that construction's going right now and everything. Her business is completely taken off and just developing into something that uh, she should be really, really proud of. She is really proud of. And uh, she's very busy right now. But, um, hey, man, you know, it's uh, she's also taking the hit and just telling clients next year and turning down jobs and uh, – which is good. It's all part of it, right? And, and we're excited to be making it happen and excited to be able to go do it because it's, uh, 
It's not something to be taken for granted. The fact that we can pull this off is uh, is something that we're really, really grateful for. And it's not easy, but it's easier than you think when you just look at it without even taking steps to try to do it, I guess, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like you look at it from the outside and saving what we saved and doing what we've been able to do would have seemed completely impossible to me if you looked at it in one big step, but taking all the little steps that we did and here we are and, and the math works and we're not selling the farm, you know, or anything so you're not else. Selling the house. Are you going to rent out the yep, house? Yep. We're going to, we're going to rent the house. We're able to find some renters to rent it out for 11 months on a closed contract. And, um, it's actually a little bit of a source of income, which is great. And, uh, yeah, the plan is I, I think after a year sailing, we're going to be pretty excited to get back to our house and our normal life, and the kids will be excited to get back to high school and everything. And I know a lot of people go for a year and want to make it their lifestyle and wind up going for a lot longer, and that could very well happen to us. But uh, the way that we've set it up right now, it's it's set up for a 12-month period, and any changes to that would be a, a major change to the plan. Now, you're a mechanical engineer. You could do a lot of work online as, a, as an independent contractor. Do you plan on doing any of that? I don't. Not for right now, right? It's, uh, it's very much a take-the-focused year with the ages that the kids are at, spend some quality time with them, uh, really enjoy the experience. And, um, you know, because the bottom line is right now, the way that I'm set up is if I were worried about making money, it's, you know, whatever, if I work one month here in my current job, probably equals three months of working remotely, trying to scrounge up work in a different place. And so it was very much a decision of, hey, we're going to save up and work hard now um, and then not work while we're on the boat. Now, if we needed to change things to where we were trying to make it sustain, first off, we probably would have had to have bought a different boat. <laughs> and then uh, and then second off, it would, uh, yeah, it would require getting creative with uh with how we work but plenty of people make it happen you know and there's lots of stories of people that you know if it's something we're interested in i believe we can make it happen again looking at it right now it seems impossible but i know step by step if we were to work on it we could make it happen so is it plan to sell the boat at the end yes yeah you know the boat a boat of this size and, you know, between – so docking this boat is probably about $1,000 a month somewhere. Insuring it is about $400 a month right now is, I think, what I'm paying. Um, and then the other expenses of keeping it around, you know, unless we're going to sail on this boat, it doesn't – financially for us, that's that's a lot of money every month to just have something sit. And so the plan is to sell it. There's a little thought in my mind that we could charter it. I mean, it's a perfect charter boat. It's a very popular charter boat, you Mm -hmm. know. And if we end in the Caribbean or even if we sail up to the Bahamas and take it back down to the Caribbean, I believe it's very charterable. The thing about this boat is, I mean, right now this boat has 2,800 engine hours. And so it's uh, it's relatively unused compared to a Caribbean boat in the same year has 8,000 engine hours, you know. And so – there's probably some depreciation that happens if we were to charter it where I, I think you probably would lose money chartering it too. But, uh, you know, say, say we knew we wanted to continue sailing and needed to come back and work for a couple of years. That's the, that's the time where we would keep the boat. What kind of engines does it have? It's got two Yanmar three cylinder diesels, three JH five E 
So it's the 30 horsepower Yanmar then. They're 39. 39. Yeah. Basically the same engine I have, but but many, many years or later or early <laughs> yeah. or no, newer. newer, I guess. Yeah. Is I don't think very much changed in those engines. This one's still, it's an old direct injection. There's no computer or anything else. Um, and uh, it's tied up to sail drives, which is their own, they're their own little maintenance, you know, conundrum, which uh, we went through those really particularly in in the survey but yeah no i feel good about you know those engines having the 2900 engine hours on them um you you should assume that we shouldn't have too many problems with them if they do i'm a pretty mechanical guy we work on cars a lot and i've worked on a lot of different ski boats trying to make ends meet or save up money i went on a kick of uh buying boats that people didn't winterize correctly and changing the motors in them so i've been through about 12 of those uh one of the things I love about the catamaran is that there's some redundancy. Yeah, right? you got two engines, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so when one breaks, or more likely we screw up and suck a rope into a prop or a fishing line or something else, you know, where if you're on a lee shore or something else, you can still get out, you know. you can. <laughs> we've, we've run into that chartering because we charter kind of shady boats. Um, you know, one engine will break down. The guys will be like, well, can you finish on one engine? We're like, okay, sure. You know, and then you don't have to go back and worry about spending the time. Now, when it's our personal boat, we'll keep everything running well, but I, I do like the redundancy of the two engines and two rudders. Okay, so I'm just looking at the profile of the boat. So it's, uh, you said it's a sail drive. Is there a, it, but I see you've got rudders on the back, so it doesn't steer the engines. The engines don't steer. They're just no. straight props out the back then. Yeah, the overwhelming majority of catamarans now are not shaft drive. They're these sail drives, and they look like little outdrives, but they, the outdrive goes through the bottom of the hull, hmm. and the outdrive is fixed. Um, okay. And so it is, there's a right angle gearbox. It's a reduction gear and a transmission in there. Um, and the issues with them is, hey, you've got gears under the water line where you've got seals to keep oil out, right? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and actually, on this particular model sail drive, there's also some cone clutch issues that are really um, prominent in this particular model where, uh, where you, can, you can lose the engagement of the clutch to the prop. Another good reason to have some redundancy. So you're going to have lots of spare parts on that? <laughs> yeah, and we got to sort out which ones we need and which ones we don't. Um, and the availability of things in the Med versus the Caribbean and all of that. And so it's, uh, yeah, and only owning the boat for a year, it's like there are some spares you need to have, right? And there are some things right now we focus spending on. We had a really big Christmas for boat safety gear, right? Yeah. All the kids have really nice deck vest, self-inflating life jackets, AIS, MOBs. We got a new radar and new AIS receiver transmitter. Um, the man overboard plan, you know, I mean, spares spares are good to have, but on a limited budget right now, spending the money on safety and then taking the time to practice on safety, we can deal with some mechanical failures and parts availability issues a lot more than than those other things. Well, the best source of knowledge on what spares is going to be right from Sunsail. So talk yeah. to them, and they, they probably have access to them that you won't be able to get in Greece. Because let me tell you, I tried to get spares in Croatia on on water pumps, and mm-hmm. it was virtually impossible. Yeah, you mentioned that. <laughs> yeah. So was was that the old manual leather pump that you were talking? No, about? no, no. Okay. Well, heck, nobody even has manual pumps over there yeah. at all. I went to a to a shop and. I was just looking for any manual pump, and they don't have them. They're all electric-driven pumps. But 
No, I'm talking about engine parts. Yeah. Yeah, basically Yanmar engine parts. But, you know, the, the charter companies know exactly what breaks down and what the odds are for everything to break down. So I would I would pick their brain quite a yeah, bit. Yeah, no, and it was really nice because during the survey and sea trial, the maintenance manager for the base was there, a guy with the nickname of Nails. I think Brian was his first name. But he was super helpful, and he talked, and we talked all about the prominent issues on the boat, right? And he mm-hmm. said pretty much it was the sail drives. And I guess the props wear out. The, there's a rubber bushing underneath mm-hmm. the props to isolate um, vi- oh, the, vibrations. The cutlass bearing, yeah, and that's a standard item to change. Yeah, it's not – so the cutlass bearing is for a shaft drive. Right. This mm-hmm. is actually the the rubber bushing that the prop rides on in the spline on the output. Again, this is sail drive stuff. Okay, so yeah. the sail, yeah, sail, right. the sail drive has a, has a spline. But this boat had new props last year. It had new sails two years ago. Um, that's another awesome part about buying a boat for the mornings. You get the full laid-out maintenance history and any insurance claim history, and they have pretty decent records of the whole thing. And, um, you know, like I say, it is a used, beat-up charter boat, but you at least have an idea of where it's been, and, you know, you get some good information. And as long as you pay the right price, given how much it's been dinged up, uh, I I think it's been a great deal. So what would this boat cost new? New? I don't know what the new Leopard 45s go for. They're not, not even in my universe, right? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but I know like a, uh, a unchartered version of this boat is because uh, I watch them and see what they go for. I'm like 475 to 500. Okay. And so you so, feel like you got a bargain then? Well, no, I feel like I paid the right price for a boat that's been chartered because okay. any boat that's been chartered is worth a lot less. And so, so I don't necessarily think it's a bargain, but definitely our big part of our equation is, hey, what can we buy and sail for a year and then sell, one, sell quickly, and two, sell without losing a lot of money because we actually really like monohulls too. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably a preference to catamarans, but nothing against a nice, big, stable monohull. But uh, when you talk to brokers, it's much more difficult to sell a monohull right now than really? it is to sell a catamaran. And know? so the plan is to sell it in the Caribbean or bring it up to Florida to sell it? So I had a few preliminary discussions with brokers, but I need to get more into that. Once we get about six months in and I can start talking in earnest with some people, really figure out the best place to sell, to place this thing in the market. Because cause we can take the boat anywhere. And uh, and so it'll really be, you know, one, sell it for a competitive price, not trying to get every nickel out of it because you can spend a lot of money in storage and insurance and the boat sitting and all of that. And then two, in the place where it'll sell. And it'll be hard because we want to sail during all the nice weather in the Caribbean, which means we're going to be laying it up during hurricane season, which is like, you know, selling a house in December. It's just it's a hard time. So we expect it to take a little while. All right. Well, we've been going about 54 minutes now. Should we talk about anything else, or should we call it an interview? Is there any information you want from me? Well, I'll probably pick your brain more about just the logistics of getting around the med, because we've chartered in a lot of places, but never anywhere in Europe. And uh, and I'm curious what your thoughts are, not necessarily chartering, but just what is it like taking a boat around Say, take Croatia, for if, for example. We like to anchor out, right? Mm-hmm. And we like to, you know, go on hikes on land or explore around in nature, but also like like to see towns. What would you do with two months in Croatia? Hmm. Well, you, you could probably what I'm going to be doing this summer, which is sailing all the way up to, to Venice. 
but you don't want to go that far. You need to go about, go up about a month and then come back down. So you might get up as far as uh, Molly Lowson's and then work your way back down. I mean, it depends on how slow you go and where you go. But remember, in Croatia, they're going to charge you to anchor a lot of places. Mm-hmm. And uh, the bigger what is, the boat. What, is, what does that cost roughly, the anchor fee? It's all over the place. Yeah. You know, anywhere from, let's say, $40 40 euros 20 to 40 euros up to if you go into marina you'd probably be looking at two three hundred euros a day yeah. in a marina yeah we've heard that so croatia is not a bargain by any stretch of the imagination mm-hmm. and it's crowded it's what the most crowded place i've ever seen for chartering and or for sailing and and the ionians are probably about equally as crowded so you know, Lefkus was not there when I first went to Greece. I mean, the marina at Lefkus, and now it's a huge marina. And then yeah. there's like five other marina bases, charter bases in that whole, that area down there as well. So it's it's been overrun with uh, charter boats. Yep. So, uh, I mean, it's it's that is what it is. I mean, I don't like it, but that doesn't matter. It doesn't mm-hmm. these companies are still expanding and the cheap money lets them expand more and more and more. Yep. So, um, I think you're, you're, you might want to, um, it depends on how much time you want to kill. You might want to head, uh, out of Levkus. You might want to work your way down and head to Patra and then over to, uh, go into the Gulf of Corinth and maybe check out Galaxidi and go visit the, temple at is it delphi anyway there's lots to see there and that's a little bit off the charter track once you get into uh once you get down to patra and work your way a little bit east from there you're you the charter boats disappear yeah which would be nice even though we're buying a charter boat we uh you know well like i say our favorite place to charter is la paz mexico mm-hmm. which is uh if you look at that youtube video there's not another boat in another anchorage the entire week. It's just that's our kind well, of place. That's not what you're going to find in the Mediterranean. I know. <laughs> I, know. <laughs> I know. And we'll we'll get it later. But um, and so it sounds like maybe less crowded. You were talking about the backside of Italy. Is is that less crowded during yes, the season? Yes, because too? there's really no charter fleets over there. Yeah, there's not very many charter. Well, there's no no charter fleets that I know of. But there's plenty of Italian sailors. Mm-hmm. I mean, Italians have been sailing for thousands of years so yeah what i heard is a lot of them head over to croatia they do they head over to croatia right they head over to croatia because on the italian coast you know there's marina hopping and the water's murkier and there's it's not that great as swimming so i mean the nicer water is definitely over on the croatian side yeah but that's where all the people are too Mm -hmm. so and you laid your boat up in montenegro for a season right no i never did i looked into it and uh, i decided not to because it was about the same price of wintering the boat in Montenegro as it would be in Dubrovnik, and the connections were just so much easier in Dubrovnik. Yeah. I could take a bus to the airport, but to get across the border and get to the uh, dry docking facility in Montenegro was a real headache, and I decided, ah, it's not worth it. Yep. So, so I've been in Dubrovnik, Dubrovnik probably four years o- overall, and I've been up to... Crest, the island of Crest, one year in, in Croatia. So is Crest way up north? Way up north. Yeah, yeah. we actually we we had scheduled to see a boat there, 
uh, very first thing like driving or getting off of the. I airplane. mean, that would take forever to drive and from Split through, up there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we actually we actually flew into Zagreb, uh-huh. and so we were driving down oh, okay. and coming back up. But on our on our way there, the uh, broker notified me that the, the seller decided not to sell it. Right. So. Okay. Um, but yeah, so that's a nice place. So if you've spent that much time in Dubrovnik, and I know it's time to wrap up, but what's what are the two things that I should see around that area or go and do? Uh, you know, if you like to hike with the family, go up to the, the Mijet Island of Mijet and go to the national park. Yeah, spend. Uh, you know, you can anchor there. Once you paid your entrance fee, they'll come out and hit your boat up for an entrance fee to the park. But uh, it's for a certain number of days, and you can spend a week just. Uh, renting bikes and riding around the island or just going on hikes. It's uh, a very protected anchorage, so you don't need to worry about leaving your boat, as a general rule, on anchor. Uh, that would be probably yeah, the number one thing if you want to do. Now there's other places you can visit. That would be probably the top. You're going to be hitting um, Sovtot on your way up because that's where you'll clear into Croatia will be Sovtot. And because uh, that's the first port north of Montenegro. Mm-hmm. And uh, where else would I go? Oh, Corchula. You'd want to go up to Corchula as well. Let me zoom in on here. Look, looking at Google Earth here. So the island of Mijet is right here. Oh, great. It's pretty big. Yeah, it's a big island, so it'll take you a day to get, get up. That's not it. Let me get up here a little farther. There it is. This one over here. And so this is a great island to visit. Corchula is just north of that about a day. Right there. Great. And then if you want to keep going north from there, you'd head up to Havar. And there's a whole bunch of anchorages around these islands here. Now, most of them you're going to have to pay. Mm Mm-hmm. but, I mean, at that point in time, you're almost up to split. You may want to go over and visit these islands. I mean, there's a million places. Yeah, for just, sure. Just listen to the interviews that I did with Andrew Vick because he spent 10 years sailing up. Yeah, well, a lot coast. of the names that you're saying sound, sound familiar because I think I listened to them once, but now with a little bit of context because we were looking at boats in Trogir and we were looking at boats in Var and we were looking at them all the way down to uh, split. Yeah, and uh, so yeah, it'd be good to have some. I, I don't context. see much down in Dubrovnik, which is interesting because I don't. Even though they've got a big charter base there, I don't see boats that are for sale down there very much. Yeah, no, there was one boat that was for sale in Montenegro that we were contemplating driving mm-hmm. down to, um, and then again that one showed up, and they said they decided to charter it um, while we were getting ready to go look at it. So, all right, Jeff, thanks for coming in. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Talk to you later. Life is short. In the end, all that really matters is the memories you make. So make a few. Go sailing.